Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the Canadian Constitution Foundation's litigation director. And I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the CCF. In today's episode, we'll be talking about new data from Quebec that shows more family doctors are leaving the public system and charging patients directly for checkups. We're also going to discuss a big payout, or maybe not so big payout, to residents of Melbourne who were illegally detained by the government during a COVID-19 lockdown. We'll get an update from Christine on the CCF's current challenge to a Calgary bylaw that bans protests. But first, let's talk about the Canadian reaction to a U.S. court decision banning the use of affirmative action in college admissions. Joanna, you wrote an interesting piece about this recently for The Line from the Canadian perspective. Uh, Why don't you tell us about that? So actually it was for The Hub, but similar scrappy uh, Canadian news media startup. We like both of them. We publish in both of them. Um, But it was for The Hub, where I'm a contributing writer. Um, And it was essentially prompted by a lot of this always happens, right? When a big SCOTUS Supreme Court of the U.S. decision comes out that there's this kind of mix of Canadian panic, but also gloating. Like, you know, we remember when Roe was overturned last year, there were all kinds of rampant speculation. um, And I was accused of trying to overturn Roe in Canada. I'm not really sure how that actually would work. But anyway, so there was this question about what is the status of affirmative action in Canada? And um, the illustrious Bob Ray tweeted out that he was very proud to be a Canadian where the charter specifically permits affirmative action. And just to be clear, that's basically true. Bob Ray is, is right. So under the equality section of the charter, so section 15.1 guarantees that you have the right to be treated equally under the law, equal treatment, irrespective of your sex, race, national origin, et cetera, and analogous grounds. And section 15.2 is kind of like a constitutionalized exemption to that general principle that everybody be treated equally. And it says that notwithstanding that, governments can craft programs to ameliorate the uh, the circumstances of historically disadvantaged groups. And this has been taken as the sort of affirmative action cover. Um, and that's fine as far as it goes. But my piece in the hub was kind of looking at the tension between that and the fact that, as we know, the, affir- the elephant in the room is that affirmative action programs have gone pretty far in actually outright discriminating against certain groups. So particularly, I talk about the Toronto District School Board, which recently changed. They had an enriched programs, a specialized programs um, system, which was previously based on merit. And just in spring 2022, they switched it to a lottery-based program with with quotas um, for, they call it DILM, Black, Indigenous, Latino, and Middle Eastern students, um, where they assigned 20% of the seats to them. Um, And there was a U of T economist um, who did a very detailed breakdown that found that the result was that um, if you were part of the BLM demographic, you were four times more likely to gain admission to a specialized program. And because when you look at the demographics, the kids who actually apply are overwhelmingly overrepresented just relative to demographic share um, by Asian Canadians. 
So essentially now if you're applying and you're Asian, because there are many more Asian kids who are applying, your, your chances get slashed and kids in the, in the 20% quota group, they get quadrupled. And we, we might justify that. Um, but the TDSB, the Toronto School Board, has not kind of said what the objective of that is. So anyways, I've gone on too long. But the question is, how far can you go? And there was even a New Yorker piece that like, it's always been the sort of bete noir, the like skeleton in the closet of affirmative action proponents in the US that it was understood that Asian Americans um, who also, you know, disproportionately apply and are selected for elite colleges, that they would be the ones thrown under the bus. And I just think we have to be frank about that. But Josh, you're new counsel for the CCF, and we thought it would be a good way for our community to get to know you a bit more, because um, I know that you have strong feelings about affirmative action being, um, in a way, a part of an underrepresented, not in a way, you are part of an underrepresented uh, minority as well. Yeah, so let's just say I'm not a huge fan of affirmative action, and this is from sort of personal experience. So uh, for those who don't know me, I was a journalist for about nine years before I went to law school. And uh, in one job, I worked for CTV. And it was a great job, loved the people there. Um, but uh, basically, one of my first tasks when I uh, went to work there was to cover the 2015 election. That was the big election where Trudeau came from behind, from third place, all the way to a majority government. Super exciting. Um, and I loved covering it. My stories did really well. Like I was really good at figuring out what people were interested in, in reading about um, during that campaign. And uh, so, um, but anyway, so I thought I did a really good job finding stuff that people were interested in. And I thought the numbers showed that. So when this full-time job came up, um, covering politics was the only full-time online politics job in the whole um, corporation. Um, I said, you know, hey, I'm going to apply to this. And my boss told me, look, you can't apply for this. And there's a reason for that. It's because this job is reserved for a woman. And I was kind of taken aback. I thought it was uh, strange and kind of funny because, you know, I was a gay man. Also, if you looked around the newsroom, I think it was majority female by that point. And like my boss was a female, her boss was a female, her boss was a female, like everyone in management was female by that point already in journalism. But she pointed me to this, you know, Employment Equity Act. And I'd never heard of this law. So I went and looked at it and it's this federal law from 1986 that says, you know, federally regulated um, institutions, which includes broadcasting, they have to um, like set targets, basically quotas for um, equity so that everyone's perfectly represented, but they only did it for certain groups. So they have to have quotas for women, for uh, what they call visible minorities, which means anyone not white, Aboriginal people and people with disabilities, but they didn't include LGBT, I think, because in 1986, that would have been, you know, maybe too controversial. So I just think that's a really good example of what you were talking in your piece, Joanna, about how, you know, 15.2 is the, the section of the charter that allows things like affirmative action, even though they do discriminate on the basis of, you know, race or gender or sexual orientation, but it's supposed to be the exception to the rule, right? 15, section 15 is about actually treating people equally at the end of the day. And I think we sort of, you know, jumped the shark on on that. So I'm really excited to be at the Constitution Foundation. It's a place that believes in true equality. And um, Christine, we haven't heard from you. Like I'm interested if you have some some thoughts on this issue. 
Yeah. So I was really interested in the U.S. Supreme Court decision. I I read it when it came out. Uh, I think one of the things that's important to remember is that there are a lot of big differences between Canada and the United States, not just the fact, as Joanna highlighted, that we have Section 15.2 of the Charter, which for all the reasons Joanna outlined, permits some of that uh, picking and choosing along these these racial or gender or uh, sex lines. But another uh, big difference is in, between Canada and the United States is the history of racial classification in the United States. Just it has a really different history that has led to universities and federal and state governments using what ultimately particularly in the United States, are quite arbitrary racial categories. We don't have the same um, universal list that all these institutions use, although we do we do have checkboxes. The, the terms in the checkboxes are different. So I'll give you an example uh, that we've actually been using on this podcast. It's the term, the term Asian, which actually captures a majority, I think, of the global population. But yeah, sure, let's just treat all these people like they're the same. Um, a person from India is very different from a person from China. And a person from Hong Kong is very different from a, a person from mainland China versus a person who is from uh, a Uyghur person from the Northeast. So they've all had extremely different life experiences and bring different things to the institutions that are looking to admit them as an employee or uh, as a as a student. The United States also has the term Hispanic, which we don't seem to use in Canada. We prefer the term Latino or Latina or I guess now Latinx uh, if we're going to go in that direction. But in the United States, the term Hispanic includes Black and Indigenous people, Spanish-speaking people from extremely poor rural areas in South America. It also includes Brazilians, who, by the way, are not Spanish-speaking, but in some of the classifications, in some institutions, Brazilians count as Hispanic. It also includes white immigrants from Spain. So my view from a policy as well as a legal perspective is that treating people as a monolithic group Asian or Hispanic, uh, it's it's wrong. The experiences that, that these people have had, it's all very different. And I like the notion that has come out from this Supreme Court decision in the United States that, sure, race can be considered because um, it's a part of the story of the applicant that they're telling about their grit and their ability to overcome adversity as if, if that was the case as a result of their race, but not to use race as a victimhood checkbox if it doesn't actually apply to them, right? Like you have, what I liked about the Supreme Court decision is it allows this flexibility of considering these factors without making it this automatic checkbox of, yes, I, 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 this applies to me. So that's sort of my take. I think there's a great book on this that I recommend to everyone called uh, The History of Racial Classification in America, or it's called Classified, The History of Racial Classification.
Josh, let's talk about your news headline for this week, which is about doctors in Quebec, an issue yeah, that we so this, at the uh, this story Foundation eye, have worked um, on a lot. Because it had some really interesting numbers. So basically, uh, the Global Mail found out that Quebec now has about 642 doctors who have opted out of the public insurance system, which means that they're you know just charging patients directly. And it had become pretty common in Quebec for surgeons to opt out and charge patients directly. But uh, what was really interesting to me is now that there are you know hundreds of family doctors who have gone private. And um, it's the numbers have almost doubled from 2012. Um, so basically in Quebec, you can now, if you're, you know, maybe one of the 20% of people who doesn't have a family doctor, you could go to one of these private family doctors, they'll charge you 240 or $250 and you can see a doctor right away. And, uh, there are other options too. Like you could sign up, uh, uh, with a, a doctor on some plan and pay seven ninety nine a year and get a certain number of, of visits. Not surprisingly, a lot of people quoted in the article are making the same old arguments that we hear over and over again that doctors leaving the public medical Medicare system somehow means that, you know, poor or middle class people who stay in the public system will get worse care. But I really don't see how that's the case because, you know, if 10% of patients leave the public system, that's 10% more public funding for those who are in the public system. And, you know, people make this counter argument that there will not be enough doctors left in the public system if people leave for the private system. But, you know, you can just train more doctors like we can just make more seats in medical school and train more doctors. It takes time. But uh... and not only that, by the way, like the availability of doctors and the availability of doctors hours is determined by rationed health healthcare budgets. Right. It has. It is not according to dynamic demand. That's kind of like the whole fallacy of the, you know, the healthcare monopoly that we expect, you know, in our society for everything to be sort of this dynamic exchange of goods and services. And somehow those laws don't apply to the delivery of healthcare, right? So like, you know, the provincial government sits down at the beginning of, of the term and they try to decide like kind of what they can get away with. And guess what? We know it often doesn't match the actual demand. And it's also going to get even worse because our population is quite old and reaching boomers are reaching their peak healthcare consumption. Sorry, I spent like many years ranting about this. No, no, I could rant about this for years too. Like one of the things people don't realize in this conversation is, is like you say, the, government's, the government specifically limits the number of doctors there are. They're extremely stingy with the number of seats in medical schools because if there are 1,500 doctors graduating a year instead of 1,000, they're going to have 50% more bills in the public system because that, you know, all those people who can't get in to see a family doctor now will suddenly be able to see that and charge the public system. So they They're create stingy, this. And yet just one yeah. more point in this and then I'll stop interrupting. They're stingy. And yet Canada's percentage of GDP healthcare spending is one of the highest in the developed world. Like, it's not like we don't spend enough money and we keep spending more money and our wait lists keep getting worse. And yet the, you know, the, the call of the like, you know, doctors for Medicare and the various lobbying groups is just, you know, stick with the plan. Well, the plan's not working. Yeah. And there are alternatives. We're the only country in the world that has the system of a government monopoly on healthcare. 
I, I mean, other than North Korea. The only and, Western country, non-communist country, theoretically non-communist country. Um, but no, so the, the other interesting thing is Quebec uh, has said in this article that they actually are going to do a big, huge increase in the number of medical uh, school seats. So um, that should that should solve the supply problem. And if people can go to private doctors, that solves the revenue problem to some degree, because those are people are spending more dollars um, on healthcare that weren't there before, which means more money for everybody to go around. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, a lot of people think this is a bad thing. Um, I obviously am not one of those people, um, but just an example of how controversial this still seems to be in Alberta this week or a couple weeks ago, actually, at this point, um, a doctor tried to do what they're doing in Quebec and, you know, charge a membership fee. The Trudeau government immediately got involved and told the CBC, we're going to ding Alberta, we're going to take away funding from them if they allow this doctor to, you know, charge patients a membership fee to to see them um, when she needs to when they need to see her. If so all the federal government treats Quebec like its favorite child, and then Alberta is like the the ugly stepsister. Not for you, Alberta. Oh yeah. By the way, one of our staff members apparently it's his family doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so, but there's interesting legal history here, right? So this is actually this is a constitutional law story, right? And Christine, um, maybe you could explain to us why this is happening in Quebec, but not other provinces. Yeah, so there's actually a reason in this case why Quebec is getting preferential treatment. I'm not going to give an opinion about why they get preferential treatment in so many other cases. But in this situation, the, the, the reason Quebec can do something that Alberta cannot is because of a 2005 case called Shaoli in Quebec. And that was a case brought by two men, a 73-year-old salesman named George Zialoites. I may be butchering his name. I apologize, George. And George had a number of different medical problems. For example, he'd had a hip replacement. And he had a doctor named Jacques Chaioli who provided home appointments to his patients. His patients, some of them were high need. So Mr. Chaioli attempted to get a license to offer his service as an independent private hospital. But this application was rejected because of provincial legislation that bans private health insurance. And there's legislation like this across Canada. It's provincial legislation, but many different provinces have it. For example, British Columbia, as we will get into, has similar legislation. So both of these man men, brought the patient and the doctor, brought a case challenging that prohibition on private insurance. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the court ruled that the Quebec Health Insurance Act and the Hospital Insurance Act that prohibit private medical insurance, when it's in the face of long wait times, uh, up to nine month wait times, uh, they violated the Quebec Charter of Human Rights and, and Freedoms. So the Supreme Court was actually split it struck down the prohibition on private insurance, but three of the judges found that it was a violation of the right to life, liberty, and security under the Canadian Charter. And then the fourth concurring judge held that the, the ban on private insurance violated a basically identical provision in the Quebec Charter. And because 
that judge found that there was a violation under the Quebec charter didn't need to turn to the Canadian charter. So this means that there are opportunities that ultimately the majority was because of the Quebec charter, not because of the Canadian charter. So the decision is only really has application in Quebec. So that means that there are opportunities in Quebec for private health services. And because it was under the Quebec charter, not the Canadian charter, the precedent doesn't apply outside of Quebec. So it wouldn't apply to these doctors in Alberta who are ostensibly doing the exact same thing as the doctors in Quebec who can do it just fine. And this case, Shaoli, it it's a really uncomfortable fit with another case that was brought in British Columbia by um, a doctor and his clinic, Dr. Brian Day and his Canby clinic, as well as a group of patients of that clinic. And that was a case that we at the Canadian Constitution Foundation supported uh, for, for many, many years. Joanna, maybe you could could fill us in on what happened with that case. Uh, spoiler alert, it's very disappointing. Uh, and what Dr. Day is up to these days and maybe what comes next for uh, patient choice in Canada. Yeah, so I'll be kind of brief because, yes, it's a sad story. But essentially, we lost at the BC trial level. Um, essentially, the judge uh, explained away the fact that people were literally dying on waiting lists by saying that it was justified that he felt the government had proven that the restrictions on private care were justified to protect the public system. Um, then at the BC Court of Appeal, so we also lost, but my God, that was like any observer that would read that decision and think that in any way it was vindicating or good for the BC government is completely nuts. Um, so the judges found that the trial judge erred in not finding that there was actually a violation of the right to life, meaning, yes, people were actually dying demonstrably as a result of these restrictions. And then most interesting to us as kind of constitutional law nerds, so there's a kind of practice that's developed in Canadian constitutional law jurisprudence that you find a violation of section seven, which is the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, it will not be saved under section one. There's one exception to that under an Ontario Court of Appeal case um, that the Supreme Court didn't hear. So anyway, so a concurring judge, Justice, Madam Justice Fenlon, found that there was a violation to life, liberty, and security of the person. Then she had this really interesting kind of hand-wringing explanation why under section one, which is where you do consider broader policy objectives, it was necessary to kind of to safeguard the public interest. So for me, as a classical liberal, this is just so rhetorical, right? Because we know that like the individual harms happened, right? People died. Uh, a teenager lost her soccer scholarship because she couldn't get knee surgery in time. Um, Waleed Kalfala, one of the child plaintiffs, is permanently paralyzed and is permanently in a wheelchair because his spine curvature was too severe because he wasn't treated in time. So these are like real concrete harms. Sorry, you can probably hear I'm like, I can't talk about this without standing on my table at this point. And then you have this sort of amorphous, imaginary public interest, right? Like, what is the public interest? And the judge is like divining what it is. Um, so I thought it was really interesting. And it's a clear legal tension. Um, and keep in mind, uh, this is a country where we use this right, Section 7, life, liberty and security of the person to grant the right to safe injection sites, 
medically assisted assisted deaths, um, brothels and, and security for prostitutes. Like we are not a country that shies back in terms of like moving constitutional liberties into all areas of life. Um, but somehow when we get to this topic, it's just everybody's running around with like chickens with their heads cut off, freaked out. So anyways, all of which is to say the Supreme Court ultimately denied leave in this case, in spite of the fact that this is clearly an issue that everybody recognizes is existential. Um, all three major newspapers, Globe and Mail, National Post, Toronto Star, even the Toronto Star said this is an outrage. Like, is the Supreme Court really suggesting this is not a matter of national importance? Um, what could be of, of more pressing national importance than the existence of our healthcare system, given what we know, especially in the last few years, right? You have like our system, which has completely overweened and essentially crashed. So Dr. Brian Day, I think, needed to take some time to... <laughs> recover. He and his family have dedicated the last, I think, 15 years to this fight. Um, and it was not a matter of personal enrichment for him, by the way. He is a past president of the Canadian Medical Association. He's a renowned surgeon and he had many offers to go become a millionaire and head up like a private hospital in, in Arizona. But he honestly believes believed in trying to save our healthcare system. Uh, now he's writing a book and as for us at the CCF, we are not giving up on this fight for patient choice. Uh, it's a generational issue. Um, and watch this space because we're looking into future litigation opportunities, perhaps in a different province. Yeah, it's a really important case. And I'm glad that we're going to continue to pursue it and look for, for more opportunities. Now, I'll, I'll give my my headline for the for the week, which is about it's something coming out of Australia. So I don't know if you guys remember, but there was this thing called COVID-19 uh, and everybody just lost their minds when this, this virus came out of China. And I know we've all tried to kind of block this out from our memory because so much absolutely ridiculous and stupid stuff happened. A lot of stupid stuff happened in Canada policies that I think were unconstitutional. Uh, but I have to admit that I think that it might have been worse in, in Australia. And keep in mind, Australia is a liberal democracy. Australia is not China. It is not a basic dictatorship. And the kinds of things that happened in Australia, you really would not think could happen in a place like Australia. But now it seems like maybe the government is paying a price for that. Yesterday, I read that residents of nine residential towers in North Melbourne and another community called Flemington, these were public housing towers. So these were low income residents. They were suing the government and they actually settled the case. And the reason for the lawsuit was in July of 2020, about 3,000 of the residents of these towers were prevented from leaving their apartment at all. They were under this really sudden and strict quarantine measure. And the police created these fence rings around the buildings, preventing people from, from leaving. So the residents sued the government. And it has now been confirmed that the they've accepted an offer to settle the case for $5 million which will amount to around 2,200 per 
adult and about 1,100 for a per child. That's in Australian dollars, by the way, which are worth just slightly less than Canadian dollars. But the government of Australia has not actually apologized for locking Australians, low income and immigrant Australians in their buildings the way they did in China. And a lot of the residents didn't even initially know what was happening. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that there were a bunch of them who couldn't speak English. And the Australian government is still saying today they won't apologize and that locking these people in their buildings was justified. Personally, I don't know if $2,000 would be enough to compensate me for that experience. Uh, I value my my freedom a lot. I think it's quite valuable, but uh, we didn't see anything quite as bad in Canada. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Josh, what do you think? Was any, was anything in Canada quite as bad or do you think we're ever going to see compensation yeah, the, for anything the curfew that happened was, during COVID? was pretty bad. And the stay at home order, I mean, I, to me, it didn't feel very short. Um, for those who aren't from Ontario, uh, this stay at home order was basically where the government said you can't leave your house unless it's uh, for one of these reasons that we have pre-approved. And it was a list. I think at one point the list was, you know, 27 reasons. But um, yeah, that order was crazy. Like, I, I don't I, I think Australia might have been the craziest of all countries when it came to um, how hard they cracked down of all Western countries, let's say, in, in terms of how they cracked down. But that stay at home order was really serious, like it included a total ban on protest. And that means that meant like you couldn't even go outside as a single person with a sign by yourself with no one around to get COVID or from or give COVID to. And in fact, the CCF um, assisted one a man who was who was ticketed for um, protesting for by with himself a with a mask on outside Kingston City Hall with a mask on. Right. Yes, he was masked. So the reason, though, that I that I bring up this this ban on protests, like I I think that's one area where we could actually see some success, despite all of the deference that judges have been showing to governments in terms of the lockdown policies. Um, and I say this because I was watching this challenge uh, fairly recently to that stay at home order. So what happened was this guy, he uh, his name's Randy Hillier. He was an MPP, so a member of provincial parliament. And he went to a um, an anti-lockdown protest. Like his constituents were saying, this is destroying our businesses. This is destroying our physical health and our mental health. And he went there, he got a ticket, which, um, was quite serious, like he could face jail or $100,000 in fine. And um, all he did was exercise his, you know, 2C rights, which are very clearly written in the Constitution that you you have a right to peaceful assembly. So anyway, I watched this constitutional challenge. And the reason I'm a bit optimistic is because the government was having a really hard time justifying this particular restriction. And that's because, you know, for those who don't know, um, governments are allowed under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to limit your freedoms if it's demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, which means um, it means a number of things. But one of the one of the requirements is that the the means by which the government um, limits the right has to be minimally impairing. So if there's like uh, if there's a less rights restricting way 
to achieve their goal, in this case, you know, keeping people out of hospital with COVID, they have to pick that um, because that's what the constitution requires. And um, at that time where they did the stay at home order, where they banned all protests, you could go to Costco, you could film a crowd scene for Netflix or a Hollywood movie. Um, you could go to an NHL game, but you couldn't, you know, go to a protest. So I'm pretty hopeful that um, this might be one of the few cases where judges actually say, yes, your charter rights were violated. And um, yeah, the government just had no answer to this. They were saying, well, we closed, we closed museums and we closed zoos. Um, and maybe you have a constitutional right to go to the zoo, but you certainly have a constitutional right to protest, right? So um, yeah, I'm hopeful on that one. And Joanna, there are a couple other COVID challenges, including that the CCF is involved in that could be successful. Where are we at with, uh, with those? Well, uh, we don't have time to really get into them. I wanted to say it's unfortunate that this challenge is brought by Randy Hillier because he is a little bit nuts and had his Holocaust comparison, which again, the one rule is don't compare it. Don't say something that isn't the Holocaust is like the Holocaust. Um, but we are waiting on the outcome of our Emergencies Act case where we challenge the indication of the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy. We hope to get that. I think closer to Christmas, our lawyer thinks it could be a bit earlier, certainly not until this fall. And then we have our appeal of our um, our challenge to the BC Health, the BC Vaccine Passport Program, which provided no workable medical exemptions. Um, so even if you had a noted medical side effect from one of the vaccines, you didn't really have a clear path to having an exemption. Um, and that will be heard, I believe, this fall, Christine. And I'll be there live tweeting the whole thing. Very excited. So how about I give an update now about one of our existing cases? This is my the freedom update in podcast form. And I'm just going to give a really quick update about our legal challenge to a bylaw in Calgary that bans protests based on the subject matter of the protest. So this bylaw was passed in March and it bans protests near city libraries and recreation facilities like community centers and fitness centers. And it only restricts certain types of protests. So protests about things that, it, and I'm gonna quote from the bylaw, express objection or disapproval towards ideas or actions related to race, religious belief, color, gender, gender identity, gender expression, physical disability, mental disability, age, ancestry, place of origin, marital status, source of income, family status, or sexual orientation. So but the bylaw prohibits protests like that about those subjects uh, on publicly accessible property within 100 meters of an entrance to a library or one of those other facilities. So to give you some examples, you could have a climate extinction, those like extinction rebellion protests, or you could have a strike protest or a budget or a tax protest beside a library. But you can't protest near a library if it relates to one of those forbidden topics. And we have challenged this bylaw because there's a very important principle in freedom of expression that the right is content neutral and the government doesn't get to pick and choose the topics that are acceptable or unacceptable to protests. And the courts have been very clear in other cases that that right is for content neutral. The content of the expression 
even if it's offensive, even if it's unpopular or weird or disturbing or hurts your feelings, um, it still gets Section 2B charter protection. It's not the job of the government to tell Canadians what they can and can't protest. And the other thing that's crazy about this bylaw is that it has a $10,000 fine and a threat of a term of imprisonment up to one year, which is a big problem. I'll explain in a second why. So that's why we brought, this is why we brought the charter challenge. Uh, we announced the day after the bylaw passed that we were going to challenge it. We filed our challenge a few months ago and we finally got back the materials from the government. It's called the record of proceedings. And I've gone through it all. I think Josh, you've gone through it as well. It includes things like aerial maps where they have kind of like the bullseye of where the library door is and a little ring around where you may or may not protest. And when you look at these maps, it's absurd. Uh, the, the, the area where you can protest, where you're allowed to protest, puts you in these random residential zones that don't even, you can't even see the library. You're like on private residential property inside people's homes and things like that. Obviously that's not where you're expected to protest, but it means that the zone that they've created is just absurd. And another thing we saw in the materials given to us by the government is that a number of counselors raised constitutional concerns during these proceedings. And we saw the response to these concerns from the city's legal department was they essentially were like, yeah, any law, any bylaw we passed could be challenged. Who cares? Let's just do it anyway. Uh, and they didn't really seem to care that there was a chance of a charter challenge. And they just focused on section one of the charter, which Josh just outlined is, is how our rights can be limited. And instead of focusing on people have a right to this expression, they focused on how they, the government, can limit it, which is to me just such a disturbing point of view to be coming at this issue from. So the other update I wanted to give about the case is that we are probably going to be amending our materials because uh, within at the last minute before passing this bylaw, they changed the penalty from $1,000 to $10,000 with that threat of imprisonment. And it seems to me and to our lawyer representing us in this case, that that's getting into criminal law power. The city does not have the power or the authority to enact criminal law and creating a law with a $10,000 penalty and a threat of jail time seems like it might be outside of the scope of their power. So that that's my update. Why don't we move now to our last segment, which is our bad legal takes. Um, Josh, why don't you go ahead? Uh, my bad legal take goes to uh, Heritage Minister Pascal St. Ange. So this is the new minister that's in charge of C-18, which is the botched legislation um, that says Facebook and Google have to pay newspapers and CBC and CTV um, if people post links to their website on Facebook or if Google posts them on their website. It doesn't make a lot of sense because if anybody should be paying anyone, it should be the newspapers paying these tech platforms for all the traffic that they get, but that's kind of beside the point here. Um, but the minister was saying, you know, she's she's shocked that um, these companies are blocking news. And she says, a free and independent press is fundamental to our democracy and Canadians expect tech giants to follow the law. You know, they are following the law. They're doing exactly what they were told to do, which is either pay or not allow people to post links. And they chose not allow people to post links. And it's also pretty galling to me just that she's 
this minister is acting like she's a friend of an independent media when this government has passed multiple bills um, that restrict the media and interfere with the media by, you know, defining who is a, who is a journalist, who gets public funding, um, what content gets produced, what content gets shown at the top of your Netflix feed. And so these bills raise obvious free expression concerns that I don't think this government has any credibility to say that they are friends of an independent press. Um, Joanna, I know your bad legal take was also related to, to Canadian heritage. Yeah, so it's from Heritage itself, and it's a 45-second little animated clip explaining how the Online Streaming Act, which is now law in Canada, how it actually works. And it's a cute little animated clip with a little racialized boy named Alex. And it says, Alex used to like to go to local concerts and enjoy local music, but now over the last three years, can't find the same local music. So I mean, a big part of that was because he was locked in his house by the government. <laughs> So that's why, I mean, is this a new rationale? Like, because of the lockdown, we need the <laughs> online streaming act? Like, that makes no sense. Um, but anyway, so so the point of online streaming is so that Alex can find the local artist that he really enjoys. Well, no. So first, so my first point is, like, are we really making the point that, like, Canadian music artists are hard to find? Like, Drake, Justin Bieber, like, really hard to find their music on the internet. And second of all, like the way algorithms work is the type of music that Alex enjoys listening to and wants to find is what the platforms serve him up because they want him to keep coming back to their platforms. So like, why would Canadian heritage know better what Alex likes to listen to than Alex? And a lot of local artists, like a lot of Canadian content creators who create music for YouTube have objected to this legislation because they say, I don't have the resources to file these applications to qualify for Canadian content and jump through all these bureaucratic loopholes. So I'm not going to end, this won't actually benefit local independent artists. It, it, it benefits the large producers of legacy media who already benefit tremendously from, from these algorithms. Yeah, Alex's favorite band doesn't know, doesn't have a lawyer to like file his CanCon application for every song he might puts out. So mine is not a, a government legal take this time, although there were plenty of those. Uh, mine is is a response to our, our challenge to the, um, sorry, not our challenge, our intervention in a legal challenge to first pass the post, which is Canada's electoral system. And my colleague, Chris Kinsinger, and I put out an op-ed in the National Post this week explaining how we think, you know, maybe there are problems with the first past the post system. For example, not every, there's this concept of vote wasting. You haven't actually uh, contributed to forming the government if you voted for in a member of parliament candidate who was not elected. So yeah, it's not a, it's not a perfect system. There's no such thing, but the first pass the post system is perfectly constitutional and we outline why with all of these legal arguments, including that the notion of a, a riding based system is in the Constitution Act 1867, that the Constitution Act 1867 and the charter need to be read harmoniously, that the enactment of the charter didn't just displace everything before it. And we've had the first past the post system since Confederation. 
and that the notion of a living tree, the charter being a living tree, you know, the second part of that quote from a very famous case is that the, the charter, the constitution is a living tree capable of growth within its natural limits. And everyone always forgets this natural limits uh, part. And we need to consider the history of Canada's constitution when making arguments that the system we've had since confederation is, un is suddenly unconstitutional. So we wrote this op-ed explaining our position and a lot of the response were things like, I don't like first past the post. And for example, read one of the quotes, which is let the court decide on the constitutional constitutionality of the matter. Sure. Your argument will be heard therein. And I hope it's not given cred. Sadly, despite the damage first past the post wrecks upon our country, it's politics and citizens, our political class refuse to reform first past the post in favor of proportionate representation. And my response to this is that is not a that is not a legal argument. Don't respond to my legal argument with a policy argument. Essentially, what this tweet is saying in response to my op-ed outlining our legal position is, I hope the court ignores you because I don't like first past the post. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. The prime minister, our current prime minister, promised to get rid of first past the post. He didn't do it vote in somebody who was going to adopt your preferred policy approach. Don't come banging on the doors of the court to enact policy that's completely not their role. Their role is to interpret the constitution. So these legal takes just drive me crazy because they're actually um, a, a feigning a legal take is just a policy take. So don't tell me you're making a legal argument. The court should reject our argument when your argument is not even a legal argument. So uh, that is my legal take or bad legal take of the week. Why don't I throw it back to you, Josh, to tell people how they can support our podcast and our work. Sure. So, um, well, first of all, we, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And just remember that you can also support us by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by, by visiting our website, theccf.ca. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity and it's funded entirely by your donations. So please click that donate button on the website if you can. And if you have ideas for the show, you can write to me, Josh DeHaas at jdehaas at the ccf.ca, to Joanna, she's at jbaron at the ccf.ca, or to Christine at cvangine at the ccf.ca. Thanks for listening.